Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. We're pleased to have Dr. David Unwin, a GP from Northern England who specializes in helping his patients turn around their incurable diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. We also have Dr. Philip Ovedia, a heart surgeon from Florida, joining us on this episode who would rather his patients do all they can do to avoid going under the knife. Both these doctors have something in common. They have seen major results from their patients taking on a low-carb lifestyle. These doctors are going against the typical food pyramid we all know, but have seen great results, which prompted us to ask the question, what should doctors do when they come across something that contradicts their medical training? So Kevin, why did you think it would be a good idea to invite some really very interesting, but slightly controversial doctors on the podcast? Mm. Because I think in life, we have a tendency to play it safe. Mm. And mm -hmm. there's a thing about how all progress is comes from the unreasonable man or woman, because they're the only ones who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And yeah. I think that's interesting. How do you make mm. progress in medicine? How do those people who exist on the edge of what is expected to be the norm fit in? to the rest of society? How do they How do they go about their jobs? How do they get on with things? In the case of Dr. David Unwin, how does he keep his practice going and, and not step over the line, but not right. be fearful of experimenting with sort of new ideas? I think that was one of the things I really enjoyed in the episode that you'll be listening to shortly, um, is that he met with, with a lot of resistance. And his practice didn't want to continue what he was, the path he was going down, but he took the time and effort out of his own capabilities and his own beliefs and started to collect data. Yeah, it's admirable. It also feels dangerous for us to be bringing people on who, who are out, who are unorthodox because mm. we could quite rightly be accused of sort of pushing a particular narrative. And I think that's why we're recording this. Now, yeah. it's just to say, actually, this is about what you do at the edges and about how people find joy back in, in their mm. practice. And that was a big part of it for me, is that Dr. Unwin seems like somebody who really enjoys his work. Now, it, there's the revitalization of his relationship with his patient. It sounded to me like he was starting to lose motivation, felt like he was over-prescribing, over-medicalizing, if that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> it is today <laughs> rather than getting people healthy which is, right. a, which is a different sort of approach and i think he looked at his tool set and decided that nothing was really inspiring mm. in the approach he was taking so that's the other reason we wanted to record this preamble is at the moment there's a sense that gps have got very low morale there's been some criticism i think from nhs england I think. And then there's been some pushback against that. You know, it's come at a time where they all come, just come through a pandemic. And there's a mm. lot of noise on Twitter about GPs sort of feeling worn out and, uh, and head down. And what I found interesting in the study that we mentioned in this, in the British Medical Journal on Nutrition, Prevention and Health, and it's called Supporting People to Implement a Reduced Carbohydrate Diet a qualitative study in family practice. And it's uh, by Caroline Cupid and Emma Redman. And it was sent to me by um, Dr. Philip Vardia just prior to the podcast. And what stands out in this study, just really a discussion, how they discovered the low carb diet themselves, um, how they felt about 
the fact that it went against sort of orthodox practices and how they feel about their practices as a result. And one of the things that really stands out in those results. So some of the excerpts are things like before I came to this, I've been doing diabetes clinics for three or four years and it was all about drugs. And I wasn't that excited about diabetes. When patients would ask me, what shall I eat, doctor? I'd sort of avoid the conversations because I didn't have a good answer apart from everything in moderation. So that's mm -hmm. from a GP. Another GP said it blew me away because all the science is there, all of the biochemistry about sugars and how it leads to fat storage everywhere. Oh, this one, this one's really good. So this one's from a GP and it says, my GP partner and I have found that it's a completely and utterly joyful way of doing medicine. We used to joke about our exit plan. We now tell people how liberating it is to practice medicine like this. You've got people coming into your room saying, I can't lose weight. That's a heart sink. I've got chronic pain, irritable bowel. I've got reflux, diabetes, and I, I can't control. Now, all of a sudden, we have this magnificent tool in the box. It's completely changed our lives as practitioners. So I think there's, there's this sort of general sense in all of these excerpts from the interviews in, in this study is that it actually created a more joyful relationship with their patients. Mm -hmm. And that, that really came across with Dr. David Unwin. And so... That's what it's about, really. With I, I wouldn't want anyone to think that we're necessarily pushing a diet. It's certainly going to sound a bit like that, only because I personally have had some success on this diet. Right. The two people that we interview, you know, Dr. David Armin and Dr. Philip Vardia, I've been sort of following with interest about their own journey and and some of the science around it. But you're only dipping your toes into it as an individual and personally just had to find something that worked for me you know I was grossly overweight and and this seemed to work and I thought it was an interesting avenue to explore that there were people out there practicing the things that had been beneficial to me personally despite the fact that it goes against the guidelines and right. what I found interesting in the discussion is that that does have to come with some humility around the actual science of it because there there definitely is that resistance there definitely is a, a group of people saying well we've, we've looked at all of the studies this doesn't seem to go this way you know what if you're wrong and it, it's so hard in life generally to know to be sure of anything you know, for, from my perspective it's really hard to know you, you know to go out there with confidence it must be quite scary to be a doctor yeah. that's trying to do something do something new because there is the, the possibility that they're pushing bad science. That's just, right. that's just the truth of it. So yeah. it, I wanted to address that because we're not pushing this. Like this is where a tech company. Is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not our forte. We don't, yeah. <laughs> we're not medics. And, and right. this is actually a fringe part of medicine. And that, that's why we're discussing it with them because they are on the fringe. How, how do you deal with that? And, and, and it led to an interesting conversation, I think, about humility, personal sovereignty as well, about yeah. you going in to the doctor's surgery and taking some responsibility for your own health and the doctor being a guide rather than coming in and, and saying prescriptively, you know, this is what you must do. Right. Being a sort of journey with your doctor about discovering what works for you and, and them helping you interpret. So if you go off and you find some weird YouTube video and it, it's, you know, proper full on crazy ideas that your doctor is completely against and disagrees with, then it should be a discussion about helping you understand why that is the case. And um, I guess in a very busy doctor's surgery, that's always going to be hard, but yeah, difficult. that's the yeah. takeaway from me is that it seems that most of these doctors have found great joy 
in mm. sort of working with their patients and actually right. giving them some agency to discover things themselves. So that was really good fun. When we were doing the recording, I kept thinking of the big egg egg debate, like in the 80s and the 90s and the you know 2000s, how eggs are bad. The yolk was yeah. bad. No, the whole egg's fine. No, egg whites are only good. Girls in the States definitely went down the egg whites route, oh, didn't you? Oh, my God. You? And that's, oh, that's, yeah. I didn't even realize that you over there, you can get like a tub of just, yeah. just egg white. And was, you can over here as well in the UK. All right, okay. Yeah. But it's not so common, I don't think. Like... It just seems weird to me that there's like a, yeah. it's bigger. It seems bigger over there, like the egg white thing, than it yeah. is here. I don't, I don't know. I, if I opened up someone's fridge, I wouldn't expect to see like a container of just egg whites oh, in there. Just egg whites. <laughs> uh, whereas I don't think Fair that's enough. that rare in the states. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, maybe, fun. maybe. Yeah, but but I, I just meant like we're constant, constantly having contradictory information thrown at us, and you kind of have to just test it out, and I that's what these doctors have done and they've gone out and tested on themselves as well, not just on their patients. And they've met with some great results. And so that's where they feel confident. Yeah, This is a strange thing is that everyone I know who is in particularly good health does seem to veer. This is from personal anecdote. It's anecdata, right? Mm. <laughs> but from my personal experience, everyone I know who, not everyone, but yeah, pretty much everyone, everyone, everyone who, who seems to be in particularly good health. So my sister's a weightlifter. Um, I've got a big friendship group who are uh, like big into weightlifting. And, it, you know, if you were to assess them physically, they'd be mm. in the top 5% of, of the country. Pretty much all of them follow something that doesn't look like the Eat Well Guide. Like it right. tends to be low carb and high protein or high fat even. And it seems to be completely away from them. And then to be honest, lots of people who are pushing the opposing view, which is the orthodox view, look to me personally to be quite unhealthy. I'm mm. thinking, well, I'm going to go with the people who are healthy. <laughs> I'm going to go with their prescriptions. Yeah. And that makes me feel uneasy. It makes me feel mm. uneasy when I go into a doctor's surgery and say, well, I've lost a load of weight doing the opposite of what I'm supposed to do, what my son is taught in school. Like, you know, here's your nutritional yeah. plate. It was, it was completely opposite. And um, so even my son thinks that my diet is weird and yeah. unusual because it's the opposite of what he's been, literally the opposite of what he's being told at school. I don't personally want to go back to the one, to the way that made me fat. And that, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. troubles me. And so yeah. it was, it's interesting to, to speak to medical professionals who exist in that world, teaching the things that have been successful to me, even though it goes against what is orthodox practice. And what's difficult is to know what is actually to know with some conviction that what you're doing is, is right. Because with Semmelweis, so Dr. Semmelweis, do we need to go into this again? Probably not. <laughs> well, he's the hand washing. He's the hand washing subject. dude, right? So discovered it. <laughs> he, he basically discovered uh, hand washing and there were some other people before him who discovered right. that you should wash your hands. And this is before germ theory. So before there was like mm -hmm. a causal explanation of why that was a good thing to do. And he just noticed it and said, everyone should wash their hands before they go and help deliver a baby. Like it seems so obvious to us all now. Yeah, nowadays, yeah. Why, yeah. why wouldn't and, and I think if we all imagined ourselves back at that point in history, we'd go, well, we'd, we'd know. I'd be yeah. like, would you be like one obvious. of them? Yeah, I, oh, I'd be with him. <laughs> totally. I'd be. But of yeah. course you wouldn't, right? 
because most mm-hmm. people weren't and most people would be like shut up it's about smells yeah. <laughs> it's about smells in the atmosphere and of course he was completely correct but then it was at a different time where perhaps people didn't utilize kind of evidence-based medicine to the same extent the fact that he turned up with all the statistics to show that it was working mm-hmm. should have been a great convincer and yeah it's just it's just hard to know it's hard to know yeah. when you're right and when you're wrong about right. something but it's a good yeah, episode. That's that's kind of it. So we're not advocating for any of the positions in this podcast. It's not our role to, it's not what we're about. Golly do your man. own research, speak to your own. Different. Yeah. And do what feels right for you. Cause everybody's mm. different. I think it's, it's important to know that there are doctors out there who, you know, want to take the time. That's why they get into medicine is to help people. And sometimes they just don't have the time. And that's quite, I think, difficult. But for those GPs that do have low morale, we see, we see how hard you work. It's not. Yes. This is definitely, and this year has definitely not, not GP bashing at all. Um, no. That's what I was concerned about. That's why I wanted to record something just prior to this to say it sounds, I think in some places it might sound as though it's attacking what GPs currently do, but it's not. It's a, re- it's a recognition really of, how yeah. difficult that job is and dr unwin in his surgery i think has shown at least a way of becoming kind of revitalized in your enthusiasm for medicine that, mm-hmm. that should be of interest yeah and i agree even with dr avedia as well because he's had to go outside of the the typical system yeah. of medicine to be able to do the things he wants to do yeah and thinks is right and that's that's huge that's yeah huge. And I love his his attitude uh, around personal health sovereignty. Mm-hmm. It's a very it's a very American thing, isn't it, to be all about the sovereignty <laughs> and the, the rights course. of the individual. But I think yeah. it does apply really well to to medicine and your own health to sort of to, to not feel passive in yeah. in your health to just turn up and well whatever you're going to do to to make me better is sort of like up to you. It's all on you, doctor. You fix, yeah, you fix exactly. me. And I think actually turning up as a patient in a surgery to say, I want to help myself sort this out and you can help mm-hmm. guide me, guide me through it and help me understand what, what my options are is, is yeah. a really great, great point and a very American point. <laughs> so we hope you enjoy the episode. Would you like to sort of introduce yourself, Dr. Unwin? Can we call you David? Yes, yes, please do. David. (laughs) David. David. So, yeah, hello, anybody that's listening. Uh, So I'm a a reasonably old GP from just north of Liverpool in the UK. And I've worked in the same practice since 1986. And in fact, I first went to the practice when I was 22 years old as an undergraduate. And I, I knew then that was the perfect practice that I wanted to end up in. So I'm very surprised to find myself now, age 63, still in the same practice. But it's been a great thing because I've looked after the same population, about nine and a half thousand people all that time. So I've had wonderful uh, continuity. I think the reason why I'm here is I've become utterly obsessed with can we help people find real proper health without using medication. Mm-hmm. And I think my my co-guest, Philip, perhaps feels similarly about this. Can we help people enjoy good health? And I'd have to confess, I wasted most of my time in the first 25 years because I, I, I just did things as I'd been trained. Mm-hmm. 
But since uh, in the last few years, I've done things very differently now around low carb. The headlines are we spend uh, nearly £60,000 per year less on diabetes alone than is average for our area. So we've got something right. We're not using drugs. I think it's type 2 diabetes drug-free remission. We've nearly done 100 people now and we're getting extras every week. So that's enough of an introduction, but that's my kind of thing, health without lifelong medication. Thank you. And look at you, Philip. I I feel bad not kind of giving you your full titles. I'm sorry, but I I know Phil's a a sort of friend of a friend. We're part of a friendship community, aren't we? So we've had a brief discussion before. Would you like to introduce yourself? Phil. thing and yeah philip will be great and uh thank you for uh, having me on uh so i am a uh, heart surgeon in the united states in florida uh so uh really honored to uh join this audience from across the across the ocean across the pond <laughs> um and i've been in practice as a heart surgeon now for uh coming up on uh 20 years during the first 15 years or so of that, uh, I was becoming progressively unhealthy, progressively obese. Uh, I've actually been obese my entire life and pre-diabetic and really was at a loss as to how to undo that. And both in myself and in my patients, uh, you know, had tried and failed uh, many times. And I was fortunate to uh, come across uh information around, you know, sort of low carb, low sugar, uh, initially Gary Taubes, and then uh, from there led to, uh, you know, all the fabulous work that's been done by uh, Dr. Unwin and and, uh, the other uh, kind of, uh, you know, leaders in this field. And I had great personal success. And uh, through that journey, I also realized, you know, how much of a disservice, uh, you know, we've been doing to our patients uh, with the persistent messaging around things that don't work and our, our focus on cholesterol and, and our focus on low-fat dieting and, you know, kind of the U.S. dietary guidelines. So over the past five years, along with my personal journey to improve my health and my professional focus has now shifted towards metabolic health. And while I continue to work as a heart surgeon, I would rather prevent people from needing heart surgery than than operate on them these days. And as a kind of side note of that, I've really taken an interest in, you know, what I call health sovereignty and how both physicians and patients can work together to take back control of their health to try and minimize the outside influence of of things like government and insurance industries and the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry. And I believe, you know, food, dietary lifestyle is is at the root of that. And so I'm really excited to have a discussion around that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Philip. I think it's fair to say that there's there's quite a big community around low carb and it has it has a lot of um coverage in some of the big podcasts you know the 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 tim ferris's of this world uh, seem to be advocates of kind of ketogenic diets and low carb diets um um the joe rogan experience is always full of uh sort of low carb enthusiasts it 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 seems to be part of the popular culture there's dr michael mosley over here um who, who talks quite a lot about sort of low sugar diets it seems to be in the popular culture um 
and there's plenty of material out there and I'm sure you've done um, many videos and YouTube uh, YouTube videos and podcasts yourself Dr. Armwin on, on, on low carb but w- where we've come from at Saad is obviously we're, we're appraisal and revalidation software supplier and so we've got an audience of, of medics and medical directors and people who, who exist in that community. And what I thought it might be interesting to discuss is how you have dealt with perhaps coming up against um, uh, an approach which is unorthodox and how you feel about that. How, what challenges is that has, has put you in in terms of your career um, and, ha- and how science moves on? And, and to frame that, I thought we could discuss a little bit about um, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis uh, and, and the concept of the this, this Semmelweis reflex. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I don't <laughs> know if we've got any Hungarian <laughs> audience. I'll take this one, Kevin. So Ignaz Semmelweis was a Hungarian physician who in 1847 demonstrated that hand washing could drastically reduce the number of women dying after childbirth. Despite results where hand washing reduced mortality to below 1%, Semmelweis's observations conflicted with the established scientific and medical opinions at the time, and his ideas were rejected by the medical community. He suffered a breakdown and was put into an asylum where he was beaten by the guards. He died 14 days later. Semmelweis's practice earned widespread acceptance only years after his death. Now, does that sound familiar to to you both? <laughs> it sounds horribly uh, and tragically familiar. And I was just thinking, in fact... Um, it was 1793 when the low-carb diet was used for the very first time oh. on somebody with type 2 diabetes, a Captain Meredith. Uh, oh, wow. So that was the first time. And then, uh, as we're going to discuss, I was ridiculed hundreds of years later for doing something similar. And then we did the same. We keep doing the same, don't we? I was thinking about cigarettes. And mm. I know that I, I know uh, that the senior partner in the practice I'm in now in about 1960, was recommending cigarettes for anxiety to patients I know now. And at the round of that time, so doctors were actually recommending cigarettes. And then it was poor old Doll, wasn't it, who was saying the cigarettes are dangerous and he was ridiculed. It took decades to get to grips with cigarettes, decades. Mm. And then Yudkin suffered a similar fate with sugar, where he was, uh, he was saying that sugar's the problem, and he was ridiculed. Yes, it sounds horribly familiar. <laughs> now, there was obviously less of a uh, push for evidence-based medicine at that time. I'm, I'm actually reading a book at the moment called by Tim Harford, How to Make the World Add Up, and one of the points that it makes in there is actually um, how they used uh, statistics to to prove that there was a link between between smoking and cancer. And we, I, I think we like to think now that there's more of a uh, empirical approach to these things, that we look for large N number studies and, and, we, and we try to get down to the actual root cause of what's going on. So how confident are, are you both <laughs> that it's different this time? I mean, I should say, I am also a big low carb advocate, but obviously I, I have no medical training whatsoever. I'm a nerd. I do like to to listen to lots of podcasts and YouTube videos. And I have what I believe is a good ability to do um, sort of sense making, which is to to look at experts all over the web and, and use um, 
something a, a friend of both myself and Philip sense making. There's a, there's a guy called Michael Gimmering who, who runs a course on this, which is essentially about looking at experts and how, how to consume information in, in a world where information is abundant and how to make sense of that. So I would say that is that is a skill I feel I've picked up. So I, I myself was uh, 225 pounds at five foot 11, and, um, uh, which is obese. Um, and it was through listening to, strangely enough, you know, Tim Ferriss podcasts and, and, and other people who, who were talking about this kind of low carb approach. But it does sound deeply unscientific, doesn't it? To go about <laughs> this this dietary change based on things I heard on YouTube. When when I go to my doctor, they tell me something different. It makes me nervous. And when I'm in disagreement with a large group of people, when when you find yourself in isolation, and when as PHE, who, who are actually a client of ours, so I should be careful. <laughs> when when PHE uh, are giving the Eat Well Guide, uh, which was they they did a review not not long ago, didn't they? I think it was May 2020. A review of the low carb evidence has come back and said, well, actually, you know, you should still get 50% of your diet from carbohydrates and starchy carbohydrates, and try and get five away you can. And I believe the American Dietetic Association have, have said something similar. So I'm getting vibes of, are all these people wrong? How, how confident are we? If I said to Philip yesterday, if there was a button and you could go back in a time machine and, and stop Ansel Keys, and the default position was that we went with low-carb, high-fat diets, and that was, that was the established way, how confident would you be to push that button? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So one little point, the American Diabetes Association are now recommending low-carb. It's on, it was 2020 it went into their recommendation, so I hope that will help you press that button that the ADA have got, <laughs> and Canada as well and Scotland all in their recommendations but that's not really what you're asking the thing for me as a as a clinician was I saw something work once and my curiosity was piqued mm. so at the beginning I felt like all of the people who don't believe me later on I completely understand I saw a patient and I couldn't believe what I'd seen this was the first ever case of type 2 diabetes remission and so that was the N equals one, isn't it? And uh, we talk a lot about N equals one, but what they do show is what is possible. What is possible? So if it's possible one time, it may be possible more than once, but at that stage, it's only what's possible. So you can't really bang the drum and press the button on a mere possibility. But the next thing was, like Philip and like you, I was sufficiently curious to try it on myself. And I think this is another whole level of evidence that if you do something yourself and it works, you feel a lot more robust, even when experts tell you you're wrong, because you do believe the evidence of your own body. Mm -hmm. And I, I very soon found I needed an hour and a half less sleep a day. Previously, I used to need a little nap at lunchtime after my lunch before I could face the patients in the afternoon. I was only 55, but you know, within weeks of going low carb, I noticed uh, that I needed less sleep, I had more energy, I was losing weight, I lost my middle age spread. And that kind of evidence is another class of evidence that we don't talk about enough. And I think it's, it's that personal evidence that has convinced millions of people around the world. And when you've done it, you can't unsee it. Once you've done it, you can't unsee it. And it doesn't matter, Kevin, what you tell me, you cannot make me eat bread and potatoes because I won't do it for you or anybody. And I think that's another level of evidence. 
And then the next thing, and then I tried it on the first 18 patients. And I said to them, you know, I'm, this is a bit of a, an exploration. Are you interested? And the first, we did it together. So it was a collaborative experience. And I was so astonished. And, you know, middle-aged GPs in the north of England were not often astonished by anything. But those cases, I was amazed by how these people I'd known for decades had changed. And so I really had to think carefully um, about what was going on. Because the next question is, you have your N equals one, you have your questions, and then you have to think, does it make any sense? Can we understand the physiology behind this? Because quite honestly, I hadn't understood the physiology behind high blood pressure, heart disease. I hadn't, I just thought I wasn't clever enough to get it. But when I went into thinking about type two diabetes and thinking about insulin and insulin putting sugar into your belly and turning it into fat and then insulin pushing sugar into your uh, liver and turning it into fat. The insulin's job is there to reduce blood sugar because high blood sugars damage your arteries over time. And then when you, uh, when a patient pointed out to me, a patient said, Dr. Unwin, did you never realize that bread was sugar as well? Mm -hmm. And so that really made me think, because bread is sugar, isn't it? Starch is sugar. So I had then a physiological uh, sort of explanation for the theory that I had. And then I was testing it out and it worked. And again, and again, and again. And then for me, there was a moral thing because if you see something that is quite amazing and astonishing, and I was getting people off insulin and just think, I didn't know it was possible. I felt I had a moral thing to be brave and, and say it. But then, of course, comes the fight because when I was so astonished, because when I did that, I got hate mail and people stood up in meetings and shouted me down and said what I did was dangerous and that mm -hmm. I should be ashamed. And my own partners in the practice were, they said to me, David, really, you should be seeing sick people. You know, what you're doing is lovely, but that's not what we're paid to do. Even, for, you know, close friends. And it was a very difficult time. To, and I suppose that, so mine's a very watered down you know, I wasn't shot at and I wasn't murdered or put in jail. There was nothing that dramatic about it. But then that's where you think, well, am I right? Mm. Could I be wrong? Because I, I realized I'd been wrong for decades. So I'm not infallible. Mm. And so I kept having this, this worry because on one hand, lots of people I respect, even, you know, the partners and they're saying, you know, you shouldn't really be doing this. Is it safe? What happens if somebody dies and you're experimenting? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I had terrific tension because every time I saw another patient, I had this terrible energy and rage about what's going on. And I, I started looking at all the fat mothers in the practice and all the people inflamed and walking with sticks. And I, it, it was a very upsetting time, really, because on one I was ambivalent is what it was. So mm. on one side, I'm seeing something I think is true, but I'm not sure. And on the other side, people I respect are telling me uh, this isn't what you should be doing and people could die. Mm -hmm. I was even told that, that, you know, you could be in the coroner's court. Mm -hmm. But I suppose then what I would, so what, what I did, and, and I would say to other doctors, if you don't know, well, I think it's really important to admit that you're not certain. I think there's not nearly enough humility in the medical world. We're faced with experts on every side. And anybody that says something is absolutely for certain, definitely, mm -hmm. at least have the humility to admit we could be wrong. 
know, I thought I was right for so long with the drugs I was giving, and now I'm really not sure. And it's possible I could be wrong again. Mm. But if that's the case, if it's possible that you could be wrong, there is something you can do about that. You can collect data. And I had never collected data before. I'd never understood audit. Uh, I'd never felt the need. In fact, I used to be quite irritated by that. I thought I'm too busy for audit. Mm. It's quite a fashionable thing, audit in, in general practice training. And I hated audit. And now I love it. Because mm. if, if you do something new and if, if you're not completely certain, then you've probably got a, an obligation to collect data. And that's from the very beginning in, in March March 2013, I started collecting a data set to measure what was happening to my patients. And so they were saying, I was told their lipid profiles will go to hell and they'll die clutching their chests and so on. So I thought, fair enough, we'll measure lipid profiles and I'll measure blood pressure. But the results all improved. And that's that made me bolder and bolder. I think it's one thing, you know, there's different classifications of evidence, aren't there? There's kind of reading a paper, that's one kind of evidence. Then there's what happens to yourself, which you really believe in. But then uh, as a clinician, actually seeing patients come off medication, patients who are transformed in ways you'd never thought, you know, to take somebody off insulin, imagine what that meant to the first person I did it. Or I've got patients lost a third of their body weight. I, I just can't, you know, so many things. And when you see that, and I'm seeing it in clinic after clinic after clinic, uh, that's another form of evidence. But in amongst all of this, I thought I need to understand evidence better. And uh, I began, uh, I hadn't really understood the difference between epidemiology and RCTs. Or, you know, I hadn't really ever understood how we look at medical evidence. And so, till I was 55, I used to look at any study, and the more people that were in the study, I used to think it's a better study. So, if a study had a million people in it, I would assume that that's a super important study, and that I would look as to another study that had 20 people in it, and I'd think, well, that doesn't really matter because it's only 20 people. But I've learned something now. Epidemiology, where you're dealing with millions of people, because you're only you're you're looking at what happens to people over time and then you're going back retrospectively to look at you know did they die because they ate ice cream or did they die because they drove BMW motor cars or what and these enormous studies of epidemiology can only suggest association is to do with weak association from epidemiology and so I've got better at looking at studies critically and, and thinking, do I believe this or not? How much do the people in the study, how similar are they to the people I'm looking after in my practice? And how, how many variables were there? So in epidemiology, there are countless variables. So you don't know whether something's association or causation. Mm. But in an RCT, you're trying then to actually narrow those variables down. And I really, I was so unsophisticated in how I read papers and how I looked at evidence. I'd advise people to, it's worth learning that if you, if you have uncertainty and you're not sure, you then need to be able to differentiate between good research and, and bad research. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, have an open mind to doing things differently and the other thing I've noticed is a terrible lack of curiosity in clinicians. Patients are always saying to me, well, 
you know, I cured my diabetes and my high blood pressure and my middle age spread and my liver fat's all gone. And my GP never even asked how I did it. Mm -hmm. How can this be? There's so many clinicians. We're supposed to be a proud scientific community. And science is all about curiosity. And so few doctors, that they're so tired. They are so exhausted and tired. They've lost uh, a lot of curiosity. And one of the things I would say is... I always look out for what works and I am curious and I do pursue and ask, well, what did you do? What worked for you? And that's helped, that helps me key into what works for my patients because I'm always asking them what works and that's helped change my practice based on success. So there are things you read, as I say, and I've tried to, I've tried to be more critical in what I read. I've also tried to be more scientific in, in my practice of medicine. Uh, about bearing in mind I may be wrong but also pursuing success Kevin does that answer any of your questions I don't know <laughs> yeah, it does it I'm does. rambling I'm probably no, no. rambling actually it made me it made me think I, I watched your video in Australia where you talked about n equals one as a, as a yeah. study as a study size and um, we've got two people from Florida here mm-hmm. and um I, I always like to stick the knife into empiricism a little bit because uh, as as somebody who loves science and somebody who loves technology, I also love to to try and look at the root cause of things. I, I prefer to deduce why something's happening. I prefer, you know, as an engineer, we tend to care what works and then we work backwards from there. We treat things as black boxes. We've got two people from Florida here. I always remember someone said to me once, if you've got an empiricist and they looked at Florida, they tell you that people were born Hispanic and they die Jewish. And therefore there must be something <laughs> about Florida that turns people from Hispanic to Jewish. And I'm like, which is interesting because actually if you took someone's story from Florida and spoke to them about it and you did the N equals one, you'd find out the reason why that is, you'd speak to somebody, you know, to speak to somebody who's Hispanic and you perhaps you talk about like Cuban ancestry or, you know, and you'd speak to the, the elderly Jewish ladies moved down from New York who went to get to the son of the, the South. And it's actually that deduction and reasoning of working out why something happened. And, and that's often... Uh, exposed mm. through storytelling of just one person and, and one thing. What you know? What, what? How did this go through? And I guess this kind of leads to to um, Philip's point around sort of health sovereignty and not treating people as as one number in a in a study of ten thousand. You, you know, it, as as you say, you if you come to it with some humility that you're not sure you're right, that there is at least some debate about this, and you can help that patient. Therefore, look at look at the different options, and they can. And make some uh, some of their own decisions about where they've come from, what they've tried in the past, what worked for them, what didn't. Is, is that right, Philip? Is, is yeah, this where I, health sovereignty comes in. I think it is exactly. And you know, the other point that I would expand upon is we have to realize that you know, as much as we like to, as much as the critics of of you know low carb and kind of alternative uh, you know dietary management. Uh, like to criticize the lack of data around it. The reality is, is we have no data for the standard diet. You know, the standard American diet, what started as the U.S. dietary guidelines and then expanded worldwide and became eat well and all of that. 
there were there are no RCTs, you know, proving that that's a good diet or beneficial diet. And the epidemiologic and the empirical data all around us is that it hasn't been a good diet. You know, it is clear that our health worldwide has worsened uh, over the time that these guidelines have been in place. And in fact, if you go back to the original, the U.S. Congressional Committee uh, that was focused on the, the worsening burden of heart disease in the late 1970s and early 1980s that the dietary guidelines ultimately came out of, you know, that committee, the senator leading that committee admitted that they did not have the data. There's a quote, you know, that basically says, we don't have the luxury of waiting for data. We need to act. And, And, you know, I can understand that when you're in an emergency situation, sometimes you need to act without without enough data. But you then have to be curious as uh, David said, and uh, you have to be you have to be looking at your results. And at some point, somewhere along the line, we should have said, wait, we're not getting any better. And they did do that. And, you know, the U.S. dietary guidelines are reviewed and renewed every five years. And, and same with Eat Well and, and the, the PHE guidelines. But what we keep doing is making the mistake of saying, OK, what we're not doing isn't working. So we must need to do it more or we must not be doing it well enough, despite the fact that the evidence is that we do do it well enough. You know, people largely follow the, uh, the guidelines when you look at kind of our societal consumption of various food. And I agree wholeheartedly, you know, the lack of curiosity in medicine uh, is really, you know, I think the biggest issue on both the patient and the physician side of things. We've basically lost the narrative that you can be healthy. It has become expected to be unhealthy. And the whole goal of the healthcare system has become to try and manage, minimize the impact from being unhealthy. And no one talks about you don't need to be unhealthy in the first place. It should not be normal to be taking four or five medications by the time you're 50 years old. It should not be normal to need an afternoon nap like I experienced even younger than than David. Uh, But same thing, you know, I, I was in my 30s and I would need an afternoon nap to get through the day. And, uh, you know, I, I admit at that time I was not curious. I was so busy being a physician and all the burdens that are placed upon physicians by the system and, and everything that you just you don't have time to step back and think. And thankfully, and one probably led to the other. But once I improved my health, I was then able to step back and say, what's going on with my patients? Why do I operate Why do I end up doing heart surgery on so many patients who have a normal cholesterol level and and who aren't obviously obese? And that, you know, led down the whole pathway of understanding metabolic health and and going back to the basic science like David was talking about and and really understanding about cholesterol and heart disease. Dave Feldman is another, you know, computer scientist who has done a lot of work around cholesterol and heart disease. And explained how kind of distressing it was to me that I learned more about heart surgery from a computer scientist and an engineer ultimately than I did in all of my medical training and, and the first 15 years of my career as a, as a cardiac surgeon. I never really understood the root cause of heart disease until it led me down that path. And uh, I think that's, you know, unfortunately a, a bit of a sad commentary on the healthcare system. But I am optimistic that through the work of physicians like David and uh, 
partnering with patients and interested kind of community members like Dave Feldman that we can take back control of medicine and, and patients and physicians can demand to be healthy, cannot accept that the only the only option is to treat the symptoms with medications. Let's get back to focusing on root causes and how we can keep people healthy longer rather than just trying to minimize the effects of their diseases. Well, there's so much, Philip, that you said there that I just feel I must pick up on. I, I was just the same. You know, if you think of type 2 diabetes, it was just a matter of managing people's inevitable slow decline. It was horrible and so depressing. You know, I'd be saying to people, well, don't worry because we'll, we will watch your feet for, for the losing circulation and be watching your kidneys and we'll be checking your eyes every year in case you start going blind. It's so miserable. And the idea that, well, I'll start this drug now, but don't worry if your diabetes, it may well deteriorate. And when that happens, you know, I've got plenty of other medication I can give you. So depressing. And, and I think we were never taught at medical school to think about true causes, Philip. That was what you were talking about, the true causes. I sometimes say, you know, so metformin is the drug, the commonest drug we give for type 2 diabetes. Well, are you, do you suffer with type 2 diabetes because your metformin gland has stopped producing metformin? Mm. No. So why is metformin the answer if it wasn't part of the problem? And we just were not taught to think like that. And I've got to say the word paradigm uh, because it, in my early days, I was so confused as I saw the world afresh. And it was Patrick Holford who said to me, David, you've got the wrong paradigm. You've been trained in the wrong paradigm. I didn't even know what the word paradigm meant, but it's the whole system by which we basically patients have symptoms. We then do tests. We then classify them and think about what medication to give them to sort out the symptom. But nowhere in that system are we thinking causation, true causation. And if you do that, it's great because it gives patients hope, the sovereignty that, Philip, you're so rightly interested in, because patients, if you, if you can talk to them about why they're ill and help them understand it, they become in a position to, to take action. What we have done is medicalized the world. We've medicalized them. So I give you a, I tell you what's wrong with you, and then I explain what medication you will need for the rest of your life. Mm. I see that now as a violent act, in a way. Because I've taken something from you. If I, Kevin, if I tell you you've got type 2 diabetes and we give you metformin, a little bit of you has just died because I've taken away your sovereignty. I'm telling you to take these tablets for the rest of your life. And I haven't given you any, I haven't talked about the pros and cons or how you might sort it yourself. What I love about this approach uh, is I hadn't really thought of the idea of sovereignty but, sovereignty, but it's such a good one. What I love about this approach is people taking control over their lives and then they actually don't need me. Mm. And so now I have a new paradigm, a new way of thinking, which is, yes, you can come to me for expertise, but how wonderful if I could find a way that you could sort yourself out and you wouldn't actually need a doctor. Mm. And my best patients don't need me. And that's a different paradigm where I'm thinking about the true causes of illness. I'm really interested in that. I'm going to share it in a way my patients can understand, give them relevant information, which is slightly different from advice, I think. Advice is, I'm not explaining why, but you will do what I just said. Information, relevant information is, well, this might be of interest to you and it's kind of relevant, you know, that sugar 
is found in starch and potatoes break down into a lot of sugar and that might be is kind of relevant so that we're sharing information with patients and then i think the other important thing is the is the power of feedback because behavior change i'm really interested in the levers around behavior change we might get on to some of the other ones but feedback so kevin when you discover you lost weight that was feedback because you thought blimey this works and yeah. and it's really useful to agree with 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 people patients feedback uh, that's relevant to them so that they're actually looking out and then we're supplying we'll do the blood test and give you the feedback and if it's working you just knew it worked it worked really well so this is for me a different paradigm mm. my new word um, mm. and that's partly what we're struggling with so much the doctor the washing hands doctor they they were in a not hand washing paradigm mm -hmm. and we're slightly in a not thinking about the true causes of illness paradigm and we're slightly in a memorizing young doctors spend so long memorizing guidelines that's an intellectually dead thing they're memorizing exhausting themselves memorizing there are guidelines for everything now and they're often contradictory but the young doctors are memorizing all these guidelines and then we wonder why they're not scientists you're not a scientist when you memorize guidelines so for me the the battle is towards a new paradigm just as Philip suggests, thinking about the true causes of disease, thinking about sovereignty of our patients. Or in the Royal College, general practitioners, we're really interested in collaboration with patients. Again, it's embarrassing. I was 55 before I thought that was a good idea. I used to hate patients that came in with stuff <laughs> off the internet. And how dare they suggest that I don't, I'm not an expert. And I used to really be annoyed and tetchy about that. And now I've, I've been so, I've learned so much from patients, this collaborative approach. I've learned a great deal from engineers. I, one little story before I shut up again, but I have a patient who's an engineer. And I, I said to him one day, do you know, I've got such respect for engineers because the difference between a doctor and an engineer, uh, a doctor will notice that a painting never doesn't seem to be sitting right on the wall. So he'll keep adjusting the painting and, you know, and leveling it. He said an engineer will tell you the wall isn't straight and straighten the wall. <laughs> and I think that's a good point, you know, that doctors, we're looking in the wrong place and we, we, we level that picture up and never, ever think about the actual wall it's on. I really love the idea of reinstilling the kind of idea of curiosity and actually the sovereignty that goes with that. Because it's, it's sovereignty for the doctor. So it's the sovereignty to, to kind of go outside the guidelines and become curious and to, to see what works. But there's also the sort of sovereignty from the patient's perspective as well. As an engineer, I'm just a naturally curious person. It's always strange when someone goes to my bathroom and sees there's like little keto sticks and it's like, what, what sort of laboratory are you running here? It's a, yeah. it's a strange person who um, starts measuring the ketone levels in their own urine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bizarre thing for someone to be doing at, at home. But I was fascinated by it. And actually, I thought, oh, I wonder how it changes over the day. And 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 sure enough, I, I went on the internet and, and, and it, mine was sort of peaking at three o'clock clock in the afternoon and and i noticed that there were other nerdy 
engineers doing the same and <laughs> noticing that theirs, theirs were peaking in the afternoon and therefore it was really important that I, I measured it at the same time every day and I, I in my mind's eye I had this sort of profile and I think uh, Dr. Michael Mosley talks about this about having um, continuous glucose monitors and occasionally I see tweets where where someone's eating a banana they actually rather than look at a study just observe your own body to see what happens that, that sovereignty to actually look at the data yourself and go oh these are the things that affect me this is how it seems to change my body so I, I really like that kind of angle I mean I I guess I'm a particular type of patient that turns up to my doctor and says, oh, can I have a Libra continuous glucose monitor? And he says, are you type 2 diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetic? And I'm like, no, just nosy, really. <laughs> I just want to see I just want to see what banana does to, to my blood glucose. I think the sovereignty is a two-sided thing, both the physician and the patient side. But it's interesting that they, they end up helping each other. So there was this the, the great paper that came out the other day uh, from from uh, Dr. Coopit uh, there in, uh, uh, you'll have to help me, Le- Leicester. Uh, that's, a, that's a classic American pronunciation <laughs> uh, of, a, of a British. Exactly. I knew I'd but- butcher it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, she, she showed basically how physicians who have started implementing this in their practice are increasing their satisfaction. And it wouldn't surprise me, you know, she didn't have data on this, but I'm sure, you know, we would be able to find increased productivity. And, you know, on the patient side of thing, I think the patients want to be engaged. We, we've we gotten the perception because the patient comes to us, let's say with type 2 diabetes, and we say, take your metformin. And, and we don't say it, but we know in the back of our minds that are going to be ending up on insulin and you're probably going to have an amputation or kidney failure, go blind. And we just kind of knew in the past the miserable outcome we were leading patients down. And I think patients know that as well. They look all around them in their community and they see all the older people with diabetes who are in wheelchairs and on dialysis. And so they get depressed. I'm yet to meet a patient that if I go to them and I explain to them, I can put you on the metformin and this is going to be the path. Or we can change your diet and lifestyle. We can make these adjustments and you can get healthy and remain healthy. No patient, when given that information, is going to choose the, to say, ah, just give me the metformin. They, they all want the hope. They all want the outcomes that, you know, we've seen now with this. I think that sovereignty goes both ways and both patients and physicians uh, ultimately uh, benefit from it. In a way... The, the sort of super controlling doctor that I was, it's a poison chalice in a way. So if I'm saying I know I, the great Dr. Unwin, know everything and will cure everybody. And we all have this with patients with chronic pain and they come in saying, well, your tablets are rubbish, Dr. Unwin. And I say, oh, well, we need to try these tablets or well, you're not taking a big enough dose. And gradually the patients begin to see me as a fraud because they think, well, actually, he hasn't given me better health. I'm dis- patients were disappointed in me and I was disappointed in myself. And so that this idea of this old fashioned idea of the doctor as the super powerful expert is, as I say, a poison chalice because it's not really true. If people continue to eat enormous amounts of something that's bad for them, I can only control the disaster. It's still a disaster. It's just a slower train crash is all it is. And now I, it's wonderful to be, I'm much more collaborative, more honest with my patients. And I think that's much better. I was dying really inside before because 
I didn't, I wasn't awake, but I wasn't, it was such rubbish medicine and I wasn't being really honest. This feels a lot more honest what I do now, properly sharing with patients as Philip suggests. And it's interesting, I too, Philip, so in nine years, nobody's turned me down. Just as you say, I say, I could start the drug today. Do you want me to start the drug today? Or I, I'm interested in trying something else. And that's why we're saving £60,000 per year, because time after time after time, patients are saying, no, thanks, Dr. Unwin. Let's have a go at this uh, low-carb diet. And, and now, I, so there are nine doctors in my practice and we're all doing it now. So it, it's, it's spreading. So it did, it did spread in your practice. Was it, what sort of um, opposition did you actually get within your own practice? And uh, how did that work oh, out dear. in terms of, you know, we can always edit this out. Yeah, oh dear. Well, uh, as I say, they, they had commercial problems with it because they they said that I was using too many appointments on these people with diabetes and that we weren't paid to do this. And that's true, actually, at the time. And really, we're not paid in the health service to do a super good job. Mm. We're not. We're paid to do in my opinion, a bare minimum. And they were right. And they said I was, you know, bringing people back and doing the lifestyle stuff. And they said, David, we're not paid to do this. You should be seeing sick people. And we had arguments. We had real arguments because I had a moral, I was senior partner, but they Mm -hmm. ganged up on me and they said, David, you know, we're not earning a living doing this. So my initial response to that, this, this bit I owe to my wife. So I had a crisis and I thought of leaving the partnership. I was so miserable and I didn't know what to do. I was telling her, you know, a basic problem is we're not paid to do a super good job on people with diabetes. And this is the most liberating thing I have to say. She said, we need to forget about money if we can, because I realized that I'd started thinking all the time about, you know, I'm a senior partner. I'm trying to run a successful practice. What is a successful practice, I wonder? But the finances are in there. And I suddenly stopped thinking about money, which is a luxury in a way. But each of us have decisions about how many cars we drive and how big a house we have and how wealthy we feel we should be. And I just stopped thinking about money and started really concentrating on results. The irony is that I've saved the treasury vast sums of money in the people that are not sick. But I, for the first time, really began to concentrate on results. Um, And so the answer for us was to work for free. So Jen and I, on a Monday night, we just said to the partners, well, would you mind if we work for free on a Monday night? We'll, We'll see them in groups of 20. And you're not using the building. And we don't need receptionists. And a nurse volunteered to Heather, we must name Heather, she agreed to work for free. So we thought, okay, so I'll work during the day. And then in, on a Monday evening, I'll just give my time for free. And really, that's if, you, if you're giving your time for free, why does that matter if you really believe in what you do? To, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. So I think that shamed them a little. And then they were even more annoyed, slightly more annoyed then. But the point was, this is where the data comes in, because I started getting dramatic results, absolutely dramatic results with their patients. And they could see again and again. I kept going into the coffee time every morning with the graphs. And anybody that sees me on Twitter knows I do graph of the week. And this is feedback. But I was giving it to the partner saying, well, this is your patient, Joe. Look, I just reversed his diabetes. He's the lightest he's been for 20 years. I've taken him off blood pressure medication. I've sorted out this and that and that. And they could see uh, it was difficult for them because they were in the wrong paradigm and they were tired and exhausted. But they could begin to see hope. 
I'm a great believer in hope. And they could see that it was fun and they mm-hmm. began to do it. But then the thing is, this is a funny story. Two of them, I could outrun briefly. I could out sprint them. <laughs> and guys hate that. They absolutely hate it. They hate <laughs> an old guy out sprinting. And that really caused them to think to all sorts of things. Plus wow. the nurses went low carb. Our midwife lost four stone. The practice manager went low carb. There was evidence again and again. And then now it's all forgotten and we're all low carb and they now are getting the joy of patients with type 2 diabetes remission themselves all of the partnership are doing it but it was a very difficult thing it's very hard to bring about change in an organization without upsetting people and without argument one of the things i think is so we did it i did it for free and i think the other thing is rather than saying we are going to make a permanent change i would always negotiate for can we try this you know, would you let me try it for three months and, and I'll measure these outcomes? And I think that made it easier where I, when possible, I would say, could we just try? Would you mind? Um, and, and it evolved from there. And I think the other thing is to believe the best of people. I'm so sympathetic. I'm, I'm sorry for them because I was boring. I went on and on and on. And no wonder they were annoyed with me. So you have to have sympathy because I became obsessed and they were tired and they had, lo- you know, it's a really hard job medicine. And this paradigm that we're in makes it harder because we keep failing all the time. Bringing about change and without fighting with people, if you can do it without fighting, is a good one. And concentrating on patients is one thing. Those N equals one. And and my final point on this is to try and connect with why people became a doctor in the first place. Because, you know, all of us, we didn't really become doctors to get rich. Mm -hmm. Not really. It was, we wanted to make a change. And once you can point out to doctors, and again, Philip's doing this, how he's making a change, and you connect in, and then your enemy could become your friend. And that's happened to me many, many times. Mm -hmm. That's the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, you know, very well said. And and, uh, I, I do think, you know, when you're trying to make changes to a system like this, it is important to to, to keep in mind that you are asking other physicians individually and you're asking the system as a whole to confront their own failings and to realize what they have been doing has not been working. And, and that is a difficult thing for, for us all to accept. I mean, and like you said, we're, physicians are driven to succeed, just the nature of who gets attracted to medicine and who can make it through the, the arduous education and training process. It takes a certain personality and you have to have that drive. It's hard to admit that you may have been wrong about something, but I think ultimately in life in general and specifically in medicine, you know, we become better when we admit our failings and we're honest about them and we do something to change them is then the key that it's one thing to say you're wrong, but it's another thing to take that action to make the change, uh, whether, you know, you're the physician doing that, the patient doing that, uh, and ultimately our system is going to need to do that. And, uh, you know, that kind of gets into obviously the work that you do, Kevin, and your organization. And part of the problem is that the whole assessment process of physicians is geared towards maintaining the old system. The metrics that we measure our successes upon are oftentimes geared towards this old system. So some metrics might look at your your practice and show failure. David is not putting 
his diabetic patients on the proper medications. So he's obviously doing something wrong and we need to get more towards focusing on the outcomes. I think that's part of the part of the process change that's going to be necessary for these changes to be widespread. Because again, you look at the data that you've now put out of your practice, showing the cost savings and showing the improved patient outcomes. And you say, okay, well, why hasn't this spread throughout the system? And then we have to start looking at those systemic barriers to, to getting this change made along the same lines as, as Semmelweis and many others have gone through. One of the points I'd make is it's so interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely right there because the guidelines. So somebody, you know, how many of the how many people have type two diabetes but are not on metformin? Well, in my practice, it's loads of them. So you're absolutely right. Um, what 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 is success? What is success? And perhaps every practice should be measuring how many cases of drug-free type two diabetes remission are you achieving? Because if you've none, and I've done a hundred, that should be a worry. That, you know, if you haven't got, as loads and loads of doctors haven't got a single case that they're aware of, of type 2 diabetes drug-free remission. So we could change it. The other thing is, um, so I actually got to speak to the Minister of Health, Matt Hancock. I went to Parliament and, and spoke to them. Every, uh, what's interesting is the drug expenditure. So one of the weird things in the UK is that the drug budget is weirdly protected. So it actually doesn't seem to matter how many drugs. Nobody cares how much I spend on drugs. It goes up and up and up in every practice in the country. And in fact, it's a problem internationally. The insurance companies can't afford the drugs in America. And nobody's saying, well, what can we do about this? In the UK, you know, I've, I've lost the health visitors. Palliative care team has been diminished. The district nurse team, all of those have suffered cutbacks. But the drug budget has, remains untouched. Isn't that interesting? The drug budget is in uh, safe. And so the fact I'm saving £60,000 per year, I don't get to keep that money. I'm not rewarded for the work that I do. The Treasury saves £60,000, but no GPs are rewarded for this better quality of care. Does it not go back to the CCG? Or? I have no idea no. where it goes. But <laughs> I, the, the point is, it doesn't matter how much I save on the drug budget. I am not receiving any of that money to pay for nurses or any of the things I do. And so we have a system that doesn't reward medicine where you're helping people avoid lifelong medication. And that is a national scandal. Mm. Do you see? Because there is no GPs, there's no reward. Just, it's easier to prescribe in a 10-minute appointment than it is spend the time to help your patient avoid the medication. If we change the system um, and, and I could, why can't I keep a third of the money that I save to employ counsellors or nurses? Why can't I keep any of it? And there's another moral thing that I've got to get off my chest. So here's the thing. Go and lay it all out. Right. Well, here's a moral. I believe this is a moral thing. So in my practice, if, if I was to take, Kevin, a wart off your head, Mm-hmm. You'd have to sign a written thing that said you understand there could be long-term scarring and there could be pros and cons and all the rest of it. And I'm sure when Philip does some surgical magic uh, things, to hit, they're signing a consent form mm-hmm. where there is uh, the patient understands what they're consenting to. But here's the thing. As a GP in the UK, I can give you, Kevin, any drug I want for the rest of your life. I can medicate you. I can give you whatever I like. 
I don't have to explain to you, and you are not involved in any discussion as to the pros and the cons of lifelong medication. Isn't that odd? So I can take a wart off your head, you get a written consent sheet, and I have to explain the pros and cons, but I can start to repeat medication on you, an antidepressant or whatever I like, as long as it's legal, of course, but you don't get the same level of protection and you don't get the explanation of alternatives. So people get medicated and I used to do this. I used to say to people, I wasn't honest. I didn't say I'm starting lifelong medication, Kevin. I would say your blood pressure is a bit up. We'll just start a little bit of this for you now and see how it goes. That's so wrong. I wouldn't have said to you, Kevin, you know, there's an alternative. You could lose weight and you won't need blood pressure medication. I would medicate you. And then you'd be on a repeat medication, very likely for the rest of your life with no consent. When I look back now, that was wrong. And it's going on. So there's a sort of, there's some weirdness going on. If you think about that, it's a bit odd. The idea of consent and repeat medication. And I think that internationally, it's a thing that lawyers should be looking at about how patients are treated and the, how, how decisions are made and whether they're involved in those decisions and can they understand what is said. Obviously, you've got to understand what I'm saying, but not to even mention weight loss to you and just to start you on, not to tell you the drug is lifelong. And I was doing that every single day and the drug budget would go up and up and up, but now it isn't. So it can be done differently. Is that similar in the U.S.? Philip? Yeah, very much so. You know, all, all of those things you talked about, you know, again, the, the, the drug budget, uh, the similarities that we do not, our system rewards productivity, uh, you know, and there's been talk many times over the years and attempts to try and shift some of that. But ultimately, you know, our system is still based on productivity. And if you save money, if, if I do less heart surgery, ultimately, it, it's not going to reward me. Uh, and in fact, for my metabolic health practice, I, I have to go outside the system. Like I can't even run my practice accepting insurance or anything. It, it's so outside the, uh, it, it just, there's no way to do it. It's like completely outside the model. So, you know, I have to do it in such a way that patients have to be willing to commit to that outside of the the sort of standard system. But in terms of the medications versus surgery, again, exactly right that there there's a pretty extensive form that patients sign before I do heart surgery on them. But any medication I prescribe, you know, or, or their family doctor or whoever might prescribe, certainly we, we don't go through that. And, and, you know, we do, you know, the critics will point out, for instance, that in the American Heart Association guidelines for people with elevated cholesterol levels before prescribing a statin, there is a sentence in there that says you're supposed to talk about dietary and lifestyle interventions. But the reality is, is that A, most physicians don't. And if they do, they give poor advice around that. You know, they say go on a low fat diet, which doesn't really uh, work. Uh, so, uh, you know, even when we do maybe pay it some lip service, uh, we're still not making a, a concerted effort. And, and certainly we don't have that discussion like you talked about as to these are the realistic outcomes and long term complications that might occur with these medications. We just start the medication 
and bury our heads in the sand from there. Yes, and you say bury your head in the sand from there, Philip, but the other thing that happens is the ridiculous fandango, you start dancing because they get a side effect to one medication. So amlodipine, I hate the drug amlodipine. I'm sure it's very good for some people, but it does give ankle swelling. So you give them amlodipine for the blood pressure and then doctors are always ankle swelling, so they give them a water tablet for the ankle swelling. Then a side effect of the water tablet, oh, they get gout. So then you get a tablet for the gout. Only then sooner or later you're getting indigestion. So you need a tablet for the indigestion. That's how you end up on five tablets by the age of 70. And once you've started on this burying your head in the sands thing, particularly diet causes so many problems really, and that uh, I'm still finding new things that diet causes. I, I think a lot of anxiety and, and uh, mental health problems are down to diet because I'm finding people who say, I can't, you know, I, I, I had one guy who was on uh, Prozac for 11 years, 11 years, a major antidepressant. You know, it was basically sugar made him anxious. And he's discovered that he's, he's been off the Prozac for four years now. And a, a lot of people tell me about anxiety other things. It's, it's a bit of a sad thing, this medication. I, we ought to say right away that I'm sure Philip and I both quite accept that medications are amazing for pneumonia and all sorts. You know, there are many things medications are good for. I'm not telling people to come off their medication. But at the point of starting a lifelong medication for a chronic disease, certainly there are so many exciting possibilities to explore that I, I feel doctors at the moment, they don't have the time and energy on the whole to explore things. But I do believe one thing the internet is doing, this is historically new, what's going on now uh, with diabetes. This started as a grassroots revolution. There was thousands and thousands of people, low carb by 2012. There was the low carb forum. Um, there were 40,000 people together in a group, effective. Now that's new. And many of us physicians have learned from patients as I did. And this is a grassroots up revolution where ever greater numbers of individuals begin to think, actually, I can look after this myself. And then the primary care physicians are learning. There are now hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, of primary care physicians in the UK, hundreds doing this and it's growing. So I'm not alone. I was all alone in 2012, mm. 2013, but now there are hundreds. I've also found it fascinating that when you look at all the different specialists now that uh, are getting in this as well, you know, as you mentioned, we have psychiatrists like Chris Palmer. We have the kidney doctors like Jason Fung. We have gastroenterologists. We have endocrinologists. We have heart surgeons. We have bariatric surgeons. Uh, we have liver specialists. You start to see all the subspecialties that this touches and that they see benefits from these changes. And so hopefully we as physicians will start to do better jobs networking as well, like you said. And over here, uh, we now have the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners that Doug Reynolds has spearheaded that effort. And we're starting to see all these physicians from all these different specialties, in addition to the, the family practice doctors come together to realize that food and metabolic health does touch everything in medicine. So I think that's been uh, very interesting to me as well. And I think that illustrates another point, which is my wife would always say, find your tribe. And I was so alone. 
And, and when you're alone, you doubt yourself and you don't take action. But if, if you find a few people who validate what you say, you're more likely to do stuff. And the internet makes it possible for us to find each other. And so I'm, I don't feel as scared. I lived in constant fear for the first few years. I don't live uh, in fear now because I, people have got my back and, and lots of us are doing the same. And it's so wonderful. And the internet is making this possible. And I agree with Philip. It's wonderful now to see the number of special specialists all over the world who are beginning. And it's so wonderful when they say, well, yes, I'm getting improved renal function and uh, the psychiatrists are getting this and the dermatologists, uh, it, it's amazing. And the internet is allowing, so it allowed the, the, the grassroots revolution, but it's also changing medicine because a lot of young doctors actually follow Twitter. We're helping them to say, well, you, which paper will you read? Uh, showcase excellence and showcase results. And so social media is making I'm hoping, you know, we were talking about the poor guy uh, at the beginning of the program who died desolate, never to know the hand, hand washing would catch on. On a cheerful day, I think social media is, is um, advancing this. And there are many people who, the more senior they are, perhaps to an extent, the more they hate it. But nevertheless, it can't be put back in the box. There are too many individuals, too many doctors around the world for this to go silent. So even if I give up, it won't make any difference now because podcasts, things like this and Twitter and uh, all of the other uh, media things, there's a train set off. Uh, you know, it's, we're definitely going uh, somewhere, but social media is key. And do you know, I used to hate even mobile phones. <laughs> you know, my, my, my kids think it's hilarious now that I'm on social media because I was the old guy tutting about put your phone down at mealtimes and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Now I see social media is key. This is a movement that we have and we're supporting each other and we're gently challenging others to mm -hmm. do the same. Is there a danger there that you say is that other people join on and they agree that there's that confirmation bias? I'm just trying to think of the kind of meta, meta level that, you know, one of the reasons that you look back at Semmelweis and you think, well, of course, that's obvious. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I wouldn't fall into that trap. Then you set your identity towards a belief system and it becomes a part of you. And this, this is a problem with politics, right? That, you, that it becomes a part of who you are and then it becomes in, almost impossible to debate yeah. because you are not just debating their ideas and what they believe. You're actually attacking them as an individual. I mean, your Twitter handle says low carb GP, right? So if you, you've built up prominence in this world, if there was convincing evidence that it didn't work for some reason, you know, and, and you do look at things like the PHE study and, uh, and they come back and say, no, no, keep eating carbs, everybody. It's potentially damaging to your sense of identity and, or, yes. or your effort. How do, we, how do we know that this is the last time we're wrong about something on a, on a big scale? And, and how do we protect ourselves in the future from right. that? And my first guess is humility, right? Like don't, don't attach your identity to what you believe in the present yes. so that you're, you're willing for it to be challenged. Yeah, such an excellent point. I think that it's your model of science. So my model of science is that what I believe at the moment is my best explanation for what's going on, but it's, I'm changing it all the time. So it's not the same now as it was a year ago. And in fact, if you believe exactly the same thing about medicine for five years, that's 
are kind of weird because we're learning all the time and I'm adapting. I'm taking what I see and adapting it. The other thing, of course, is to realize that all of us are biased about things. So you're right. Of course, I'm hopelessly biased. That's the first thing. I try my best with humility. I try to be flexible um, and, and not see this as an ego. It's not the David Unwin diet, you know. Mm. It helps that I don't earn any money from it. That does help. Yeah. So I'm not poor. If I turn out to be wrong, it won't it's, make any difference. It's a social cost, though, isn't it? Is yes. the, the, it is yeah. linked to you as yeah. an individual. I, I've always had this fantasy that if I was ever a billionaire, I'd have something called the golden flip-flops, which would be an award given to anybody who who, who has prominence, who completely changes their idea. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, you know, a, a Trump that suddenly goes, actually, I'm really pro-China these days. And you go, I don't care which way you flipped. I, yeah. I just like the fact that you you took your whole identity and were willing to take the social yeah. cost of you of you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have the golden flip flop. I think we come back, Kevin, to this idea that are you as a clinician measuring outcomes and what outcomes am I measuring? Because if if we you know if we define is it reasonable that you would want a doctor to be able to cure a condition where you didn't need medication and the people lost weight, improved mm. blood pressure, improved lipid profiles. Is that what you'd want for your dad? Where he would be well, and my definition mm. of well is weight loss, fit, breathing good, not taking drugs. Would you accept that as a good outcome for your dad? I hope you would. Mm. So that if those are my outcomes and I'm measuring them, and I, that's what I'm pursuing. I think that keeps me right. And the other thing is, there is fascinating debate within low carb. It's moving all the time. So here's a debate. If you're low carb, well, you're higher protein and higher fat. Well, is it the fat or is it the protein? And do we know? I'm not sure we do. I don't think I do. Mm -hmm. But there's a very lively continuing movement. There's a suspicion that perhaps the pro sort of higher protein might be a good idea. We don't know, but there's a suspicion. We're not peddling dogma. Mm. I'm not telling you I know, nor am I saying that you must do it this way. I'm having suspicions. I suppose there's some dogma around, I don't think sugar is good for people with type 2 diabetes, but I don't think that's contentious. Mm. But there is interesting debate over it's low carb, but is it low carb, high fat, or is it low carb, high protein? Mm. And if we're to be honest, that's, that's interesting and it's moving. Um, so those are my answers. If we're talking physicians, what outcomes are they measuring? Philip mentioned that. What mm. are your outcomes? And I am measuring outcomes. And are they outcomes that you would share for people you love? I mean, I think uh, I'm hopeful that the fact that myself and David and, and a lot of the other physicians in the space have already made that flip once, you know, <laughs> speaks to the fact that we would be willing to do it again. The evidence points in that. And like David, you know, I, I've also had refinements over the, in the five years that I've been sort of focused on low carb. It looks very different today than it did five years ago. Things like um, you start to get the carnivore, the high protein, low protein, the types of fats, the importance of the vegetable and seed oils, eliminating those in all of this versus just eliminating carbohydrates. These are all things that I'm, I'm still admittedly learning about and, and experimenting with. And as a community, we do the same. So though low carb is sort of painted as, as sort of one community and one thing, uh, the reality is, is that it is a spectrum. And I freely admit there is not one diet that I can tell you is going to work for everyone and cure everything. We, we do need to adjust and medicine is always going to be art as much if not more than science. 
and, you know, we have to realize that individuals are individuals and, and everyone isn't going to respond to things the same way. But I think increasingly we have the evidence that lower carb and elimination of things like processed oils and processed carbohydrates seem to be beneficial for most people. And so, again, uh, you know, we just need to be able to get that into the conversation and, and get that into the mainstream. And I think the other thing is that it's very hard to argue against food and lifestyle should come before medicine. I really haven't seen any arguments that go the other way when you look at it. So these are just kind of some basic tenets that we're trying to get more into the mainstream, more into the narrative to change. I also come back again and again to feedback. You know, how, how do you know how you're doing? And we mentioned, uh, Kevin, you'd, you'd quite like a freestyle Libra. Mm. Well, I, I understand that it's quite likely that the next Apple Watch will be measuring blood sugar. And if it does, and when this happens, everybody will be getting feedback on when their blood sugar goes high. That'll be some and then, interesting data, won't it? Well, won't it? But then you'll, <laughs> you know, and then you'll know what happens when you eat a banana. Yep. So I, I know that if I eat a banana, it doubles my blood sugar, doubles it, goes to 10.3. Well, so I don't think I'll eat another banana because I don't like to see my blood sugar in double figures. And so this, there's a, a further revolution coming with feedback and that helps govern behavior and, and how many people now can monitor their own blood pressure? Loads. So they can experiment. And this is, again, what's happening. People think, well, I'll give this low carb a go. How will you know whether it's worked? Well, you could monitor your blood pressure. Oh, it's better. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? And, and the same can happen with blood sugar. I like to think of medicine as being democratized. Wouldn't that be wonderful if, if, if we could democratize it a bit so that mm. people could get a freestyle Libra if they were interested? Right. A blood pressure machine costs 20 quid. It's nothing, is it? It's the price mm. of a meal out. You can monitor things. So that's going to bring change uh, because people, instead of me holding all of the levers of power as a doctor, mm. I, I, I look forward to a time when patients <laughs> will be more like you, Kevin. I'm not sure you do. Well, <laughs> you may. I would have thought of you as trouble when I was 55, but now I would be interested to have a debate with you. We're far more likely to come out of this with mutual respect uh, if I'm prepared to debate. If I can't justify what I'm doing to my patient, to the patient, if I can't justify it, well, that's a worry, isn't it? it is. I think so. Yeah. I, but I would have, I know I would have, when I was 55, told you, you know, well, I am the expert. You know, mm. I am the expert. And if you're refusing my medication, well, I, I won't take responsibility for the consequences. Isn't, isn't part of the fun of this, though, that, that collaboration between doctor and patient? Can I test you with a really wacky yeah. theory here? Mariah's <laughs> like, okay, right, get ready on the edit button. What if the low-carb diet is a, is a sort of social placebo? Okay, because that would explain the inability, uh, as viewed by PHE, to see any difference between a low carb diet and, and the one in the eat well guide, but also good outcomes. I mean, at, in my house, we talk about placebo all the time. I've got a 10 year old and a six year old. And when someone's not feeling very well, we actually do, we get like an orange juice or orange squash or something. And we do some incantations over it. And we say, here's a placebo, drink this. And, you know, sure it works. When I went from 225 pounds down to sort of 190, which is where, where I bounced around for a long time. Something that I miss out of that story is that actually the low carb movement just got me thinking about what I eat more. 
And that worked. If someone had come to me and said, do you know what? You should just stick to what the national guidelines are. You're not doing anything revolutionary. There's nothing punk here. You just need to do what, what the government's been telling you to do for a long time. I, I kind of would have gone, oh, I've tried that. It's a bit boring, you know, but there, there's, there's all of these weightlifters, all these people who, who are kind of idols of mine, the, 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 you know, the Joe Rogans going out bow hunting and, and eating elk, keeping it in his freezer at home. It's all, it's sort of interesting and exciting and it's made my own nutrition interesting. So I, sometimes I wonder if it's just a big social placebo. And even if it is, I kind of don't care. Well, that's my point. <laughs> Right now. So I love the placebo effect. Philip was talking about the art of medicine. And how about this? Is the art of medicine using the placebo effect? And is placebo effect hope? Maybe. So when you take a red tablet, we know that you have a belief that that red tablet will be better for pain. Have we given you hope? Is the placebo, Jen and I have written a paper on this, is the placebo effect hope? And if it is, do we use it enough? Because hope and all the placebo effect is ubiquitous. I agree with you. You can, you can treat depression, pain, loads of things. But I think to make placebo effect more respectable, I would rebrand it as hope. And I mm. think it's very powerful. And I agree if, if, uh, if people have improved health, I'm delighted. The, the thing I would say is so it may be elements of it probably are hope. So if you believe in a diet... The changes I've seen are so profound, and I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I think it isn't just hope. Mm. I use hope, but the, the physiology, you see, you come back to an understanding of insulin, and really it's kind of logical that if we know, it's not in dispute that a high blood sugar is bad for somebody with type 2 diabetes. That is not contentious or in dispute. And then when we know that carbohydrates as a food are the single most likely cause of a raised blood sugar, it's kind of logical in every way that avoiding carbs. And then I tell you that it was done first in 1793, so it's not even newfangled. It's hundreds of years old. It's quite likely that placebo or not, the basis is right. Now, I believe that because of my conviction that it's right, that engenders, that's part of this art of medicine. My patients see a doctor who believes in this, and I do, and I see it working and working. And because of that, some of what I do is the placebo effect. But I have uh, I've thought about this and written on it, and I would call that hope. And I think using hope in medicine, we don't do it enough. We use despair and fear a lot. Why is the placebo effect not respectable? Why are we not harnessing this powerful beast? And yet I used to use fear. So I would worry, I'd say, Kevin, if you don't do this, you know, amputations and blindness and kidney failure, that's miserable. How is that okay? And then we're sneering at the placebo effect. And yet the placebo effect, part of psychology, really, isn't it? And it is part of medicine. It's part of the art of medicine and it has its place. Mm. Um, and if I use the placebo effect and the outcomes are genuine, uh, and desirable. Well, perhaps, Kevin, you're right to say, does it matter anyway? But I would, I still think I have thought about the physiology and it's likely that sugar puts your blood sugar up and it's mm. likely that that's a bad idea. 
I don't, I don't I think, personally it, believe it's placebo, no, no, by the way. <laughs> I don't. And you're you're absolutely right. People like me should not be beyond a challenge from anybody. And it, uh, I welcome that challenge as an interesting point. One final thing that we have not mentioned at all is food addiction. And that brings in a whole new thing, whole new thing, where so I've come to worry that large numbers of people struggle with moderation with carbohydrates. And when things fail and I ask, well, why why have you just put all that weight back on? So people are eating stuff they don't even want to eat and they know it's bad for them. Well, it sounds a bit like cigarettes, doesn't it? Or alcohol. And I, I think there is a real problem in society to do with junk food and food addiction. And that's another front that needs opening up and discussion. Uh, and this has come about by me relentlessly looking at what works for patients and what doesn't and them telling me honestly, why did it work? So they can't. I have patients who cannot moderately eat bread. Now, probably to you, that sounds ridiculous. What do you mean? And yeah, I have people with tears in their eyes confessing for the first time in their life that the reason I weigh this much is I, I can't moderate bread. I'm, I'm a carb addict. Uh, and this is a new thing. If that is true, Kevin, if it's true that people could be addicted to carbs, the only way, would you say that for an alcoholic, it's reasonable that they drink a small amount of whiskey? Would you say that for somebody addicted to nicotine, half a cigarette is okay? So if food addiction exists, then abstinence is the only way to sort it out. And that's another justification for what I do, that I have thought it through and that I do believe a lot of people suffer with carb addiction. And that's another reason that you need to give up the thing you are addicted to. So that's just to throw that in. And it's, a, it's, mm. a, it, it's in response to your very stimulating challenge that clinic, we should have people like you questioning. And we yeah. should always, instead of being cross when we're questioned, we should welcome that if it's meant in a fair, in a fair way. Mm. which yours was. So I welcome the, the challenge as a clinician and the opportunity to show that I have thought about it. Mm. And I do worry, sometimes I, you know, I do worry that I'm a kind of a mad person uh, pursuing this, uh, this thing so endlessly. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, you know, the curiosity is the, is the key thing because uh, there have been, throughout the past five years, there have been many sort of different angles that I've become curious about with all of this and find myself searching those out and researching them and, and having interest in them, which honestly was not something that I, I tended to do much uh, before this. And I think, yeah, the processed food addiction, carbohydrate addiction, you know, is certainly uh, something I, I've struggled with both personally and, and, you know, with the patients that I work with. And I think it is something real, you know, and the only sort of difficulty there becomes, you know, as opposed to alcohol and cigarette, we can't completely eliminate food. We need to eat something. And so is it is it all food or is it just certain types of food? And I think in the end, it's probably just processed foods seem to have a unique addictive component. And we have the science to show this. You know, we know that sugar lights up the addiction centers in the brain more than heroin uh, and all of these things. So uh, I agree that I think it, it, it makes sense that you need to eliminate these completely. Although the interesting personal finding has been that when I went through a period of truly eliminating carbohydrates, you know, I went carnivore for a number of years and, and remained largely carnivore. What I then found was 
I can now moderate those things that previously I wasn't able to moderate. It's an interesting discussion that gets into whether it's biochemical in the brain, whether it's the microbiome some people have proposed, whatever it is that's sort of keeping us addicted or feeding that addiction. It's just been an interesting thing to see, you know, both my personal and, and, and my professional experience around that. But again, those are the questions we keep asking. And, and as we've said a number of times now, I think the key, what I have learned as a physician from all of this is the importance of being curious uh, and the importance of taking an active role in managing your health personally. And as a physician, the taking an active role in managing the health of my patients. I view what I did before as a more passive role as a physician. You know, we were just handing out medications or I was just signing people up for surgery and I wasn't taking that active role in managing their health. Again, that circles back to the, the sovereignty aspect of all of this. How do, we, how do we make sure any doctors listening to this, perhaps who were earlier in their career, how can they be a Semmelweis or how can I be a Dr. Unwin? How do we push forward medicine? I mean, it sounds like we're, we're all here sort of fairly confident that low carb is our inevitable future, you know, uh, with, with some humility. But um, how, how do we make sure that the next thing that we come across, which is incorrect, but w widely held belief, how do we avoid that one? I would say, remember that any explanation we give for illness is merely a model and one that over time will evolve and change and expect it to change. As Philip was saying, you know, where he's changing his, how he does things and I've changed how I do things. So don't see medicine as a static thing. See it as a moving thing and as a journey. And as I say, be curious about what works and try and unpick why it worked and then see if you can uh, replicate it. That's my first thing. The idea of the idea of looking at as things as a model, not as I know best. I remember I was given a doctor's bag from 1903 by a, an ex-professor of mine. And in the bag, a third of all the medications were actually highly poisonous. Things like strychnine were in there and arsenic and mercury in 1903. But the doctor that was given that bag brand new thought that he was a modern doctor in 1903 and he thought he knew best with his treatments. And there he was giving mercury and arsenic. And at the same way, a lot of what I believe now must be wrong or, in, you know, needs improving. And so never, I find that that's what we should base our humility on. The idea that quite a lot of what I believe to be true probably isn't. And that it's only over time that I can improve this. So don't start thinking that you're a modern doctor that you know best. Have a a light touch, really, and be prepared to uh, move on to if what you do works. Yeah, you know, there, there's a common uh, kind of uh, saying in medical school that half of what you learn uh, is going to be shown to be wrong by the time you retire. We just don't know which half. And as many times as I heard that going through school, I never really embodied it or internalized it because you then start your career as a physician and, and you think you know it all or you think everything you know is correct. I wouldn't say you know it all, but you think that everything you learned to know is correct. And the reality is, is that it is very true that half of what we learn is going to be at some point proven to be incorrect. 
And you have to accept that and be willing to kind of be actively looking for which half of what I think is incorrect today uh, is a good way to go through your career. Uh, so to a young physician just starting out, I, I would encourage them to think that way. And I would like to add in the idea of healthy skepticism. Kevin, I think you have that. It's very important. You should always bear in mind, is David saying this because he's biased? Is he saying it because somebody's paid me to say it? And when we look at some of the lessons from science and the lessons from cigarettes and some of the lessons from junk food, we need to be careful about our diet of influences, the people who influence us. Are they paid to influence us? Are they kind as they seem? And that healthy skepticism that is this person in front of me paid to say this because just as a cigarette debate, I keep mentioning this because we should learn from cigarettes. How many millions of people died in the 40 years while we made up our mind about cigarettes? And what a tragedy. And, and what slowed it down? What were the factors that slowed down our understanding of cigarettes as the killer that they are? And of course, there were vested interests people causing confusion. So this healthy skepticism of asking somebody who seems influential, somebody who's standing up and saying something, just could they have other reasons for saying that? Maybe I like, you know, maybe I like the sound of my own voice. Maybe all sorts of maybe, maybe, maybe. And that healthy skepticism is what you'd expect in a scientist and in a doctor. That's great. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We really hope you found this conversation as thought-provoking as we did. You can learn more about Dr. Unwin by following him on Twitter at LowCarbGP, or Dr. Avedia is also on Twitter, throwing out facts and tips at iFixHearts. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week. Thank you.